Welcome to HR in 15, a podcast dedicated to addressing the complexities of modern HR in just 15 minutes. Brought to you by Prestige PEO, simplifying HR. It's that time again to do a little HR in 15. I am your host, Eric Foodham, Chief Operating Officer here at Prestige PEO. As promised, we are joined once again today by Maggie Spell, attorney and partner in the Labor and Employment Practice Group at Jones-Walker. Maggie is here to continue our discussion about federal discrimination law as it applies to the workplace and provide some practical advice as to how employers can address these issues through their employee handbook and other mechanisms. Welcome back, Maggie. How you doing? Doing good. Thanks. You bet. All right. So just so um, we all um, can make sure we understand um, the actual uh, discrimination law we're talking about. Maggie, can you give us a quick overview of Title VII and the Supreme Court ruling back in June that was so monumental? Yeah, so as a quick refresh, uh, Title VII is a federal law that prohibits discrimination against applicants and employees based on race, color, national origin, sex, and religion. Over the years, what these classifications encompass has, has evolved to some extent. Um, for example, in 1967, the, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act was passed protecting employees over 40. And then in 1978, Title VII was amended to prohibit sex on the basis of pregnancy. Uh, 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed into law. Um, but throughout all of this, there was an open question on whether employees were protected from discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Some courts said yes, others said no. Enter the Supreme Court ruling um, back in June that finally resolved that split and said that all persons are entitled to protection and that sex discrimination encompassed sexual orientation and gender identity as well. Got it. So it's funny, you know, uh, back in June, um, it was th that ruling was remarkable in many respects. Um, and I think it's remarkable that um, half the states actually have no legal protection for um, LGBTQ employees. Um, it's and now now the federal law basically is protecting employees in those states from firing and other adverse employment decisions made on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender. So, if I guess my my question would be, what should employers do to ensure they're protected? Obviously, I guess it depends partially what state you're in, right? Yeah, it does, and and it also depends on what your state law said to begin with, if you were in a state that um, did offer some protection, it could have, for example, only offered protection for sexual orientation and not for transgender status. Um, so I think kind of just making sure you understand the new scope of, of where things stand and making sure that your policies and procedures are in place um, to not run afoul of that is particularly important right now, regardless of where you are, but particularly for those employers operating in states that didn't previously have protections or that were in um, the, the jurisdictions of circuit courts of appeal that said sex did not encompass gender identity or sex to, um, sexual orientation. Yeah. So, so the fact that half the states don't have any protection, um, you, you know, for, for certain type of employees, does that, I mean, now that the federal government or the Supreme Court, I should say, has ruled on that, do, do, do they follow suit or each state still has its own, you know, right to have rules and, you know, rules 
based the way they want? Well, that's a good question. Um, Title VII uh, is going to, I guess, kind of rule the day, right, in terms of it prohibits on a federal basis um, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, States can still have laws in place that differ from that, but now they're going to need to offer greater protection, right? So if, if to go back to my example a minute ago, you had a state that only prohibited um, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, now, regardless of what that law says, still, uh, employers in that state are also prohibited from discriminating on the basis of gender identity, even if it's not in the state law. But states can take it a step farther and require um, particular types of training or other protected characteristics that um, we're not here to talk about today. But y- yes, <laughs> there there are a host of them. Some some unusual uh, on a state and local basis. So th- they can certainly have other provisions, but they need to um, the, the the federal law is kind of like the the minimum bar. Right. Got it. So, so we have a minimum and now states can take it to the next level on, on how they see fit. Got yes. it. So, so, so in terms of specific things employers can do, you know, I wanted to touch on a few, um, you know, topics that will come up or may, might've come up. So like what should be like, the first thing I think that employers should think about is what's in their handbook, right? So what should be included in an employer handbook and, you know, potentially how would, would you say it should be crafted? Um, so I think employers should think about their employee handbooks probably far more often than they actually do. They, they do require updates. Um, this is a perfect time to kind of take a, a, a full run through. But in terms of what this ruling means, uh, I'd make sure that your, your EEO policy is really clear. Make sure it states that the company prohibits discrimination and harassment and affords equal employment opportunities without regard to and then list out all of the protected characteristics. Um, you know, we, we've said that race, color, religion, sex, and national origin are protected under Title VII, but you've also got pregnancy, you've got age, you've got disability status, you've got genetic information under GINA and protected veteran status. Um, those are all guaranteed because they're all protected by federal law. And then you need to look at um, your particular state and then depending on where you operate or your previous choices, um, this may already include sexual orientation and gender identity or expression. If it does, um, great. If it, if it doesn't, I would consider adding it now just to make it really clear that these are protected characteristics. I understand that the Supreme Court's ruling ties those those protected classes to sex, but I don't think it hurts to spell it out and say sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, in addition to just saying sex. Right. So the more the merrier. So I, th- I think, um, um, Maggie, maybe you should take a look at our handbook. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of employers that would like you to take a look at their handbook. So um, th- this is a, a lot of um, kind of facts and words that need to be, you know, kind of, I guess, literally explicitly spelled out in a handbook, you know, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it hurts to be explicit. Um, You know, if there's a gray area, then if there's litigation down the road, then there's a gray area. And it's better, 
it's certainly better for me as a, a company lawyer to be able to say, hey, look, page seven of your handbook expressly says the company prohibits blah, 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 blah whatever the case may be. Um, and then along those same lines, you know, of course, you want to make sure that part of your discrimination, harassment, EEO policy is a retaliation provision um, to protect employees who do report incidents of perceived discrimination and harassment or those who are otherwise involved in investigations or file charges. We, we certainly want to make sure that companies are encouraging employees to make complaints um, so that the company can investigate and, and remedy the issue as appropriate. So, so it's really funny. So retaliation. So before June's ruling, potentially it was a gray area for an employer basically to retaliate against an employee who is based on like gay or, or transgender or, you know, just, just color, right? That, that was a little more, or at least maybe not color, but more just um, LGBTQ. So that, that was gray before June, correct? It was, but in a lot of jurisdictions, I know in the Fifth Circuit, they fell back to you couldn't um, prove a case of retaliation based on sexual orientation or gender identity. I know there was a recent case on one of those issues because those weren't protected characteristics in the Fifth Circuit. So, and I, I, I feel confident other courts have addressed that differently. Um, but they fell back to that rule. In any event, a retaliation provision is, is always important. It helps you um, make sure that you're hearing about things, you know, more in real time than two years later if litigation is filed uh, and to, to remedy things as they crop up. Got it. Switching gears a little bit. So this is a question that's come up, you, you know, at least to, to me and, and from some of our um customers and I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that on this so what what happens an employer though fires an employee based on discrimination but claims it's because of religious beliefs how, how does religion factor into you know whether an employer can you know make a a, a, a decision on an employee based on now that this the, the june ruling came out and but they're you know claiming it's because of what we believe how, how does that factor into this it's going to be a sticky situation, I think. Um, yeah. There was a, a recent case from the Supreme Court on religious employers as well. And I think it's going to depend to some extent on what, whether that particular person falls under the ministerial exemption um, and then uh. whether the uh, handbook, job descriptions, et cetera, lay out particular um, belief systems that the person, and this was a teacher in this particular case, um, were expected to model for the, the students. So that, that there's the potential that religious employers may um, still kind of have, I guess, an out with respect to these these issues. Um, but that's certainly something that those employers should talk with their employment counsel about before making any sort of decisions, because um, that's right. that's a nuanced area for sure. It is, right. Okay. Um, and then now I just want to take it to another area of, of when employers are interviewing. Okay. What should employers, like, how, is there any changes they, an employer should make now when they interview candidates for, and are making general employment decisions? 
Well, I'm just going to start by saying I, I hope not, um, because I just hope that <laughs> I hope that what employers are asking are job related questions um, to determine whether an applicant can perform the job at hand. Um, but that is probably a little bit ide idealistic of me. Um, Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, you know, that that's the focus, right? Yeah. Your job, if you're interviewing, is to figure out whether this person can do the job with or without a reasonable accommodation. Um, and there are just certain things that you shouldn't be questioning about. Um, you know, I would I would steer away from questions. Even are you married? Um, there's nothing that makes me cringe more than than if somebody asks, you know, oh, do you have a husband or do you have a wife? Because you're presuming a lot of things about that person, right? So, if you are asking those questions. Um, that's this is certainly a good reason to to cut them. While uh, you know, asking the question itself may or may not be the problem. The problem is once you know that information, if somebody says, you know, you're email, you're interviewing a, a, a female candidate who says, no, I don't have a husband, I have a wife, um, and you don't hire the person, that may not be what you based your reason on, but they may perceive that as, as the potential reason, and it just gets you in the hot water um, where that's not relevant because it's not job related. So if you stick to job related questions, you shouldn't have an issue. Um, but I would certainly steer away from asking people questions about sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression um, during interviews in light of the Supreme Court decision. Yeah, it seems, it seems uh, a lot of this is common sense sometimes, but I guess when you have conversations with candidates and it goes kind of different ways. And that's when you, you know, as an uh, uh, interviewer, you have to kind of be careful there, I would, I would think, you know, and just make Absolutely. sure you're steering, steering towards the facts. Well, let me um, ask you a question. Did you have fun here today? Absolutely. Hey, your insights were fantastic, Maggie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for joining us. And uh, this is important stuff. Like these are um, situations, you know, in terms of um, the Supreme Court ruling that can crop up in an, in an office, in an environment, in a workplace very quickly. So um, it's important that we talk about it. Um, there are things going on, you know, outside of um, just outside of COVID that I think still needs to be talked about, you know, and and and, and I'm glad um, you were able to uh, join us and, and give us very important information about such, you know, landmark rulings. Um, so again, thank you. Thank you for uh, joining us, Maggie. Um, for our listeners, you can check out more episodes um, with HR and advice um, from industry experts like Maggie. Um, you can always contact Maggie as well. She uh, you can contact her directly on the Jones Walker website. You can um, look up Maggie Spell, and she is ready ready to talk if you need. Um, for if you want to view more episodes of HR and fifteen, please either hit your favorite podcast app in HR 15 or hit HR 15.com. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. For questions or more information on today's topic, visit prestigepeo.com.